You may be seated. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much, brethren. If I'm ever in a mobile sickbed, just get me in here and sing those three again. Oh, how many were ready to go somewhere during those three songs? Yes, you Jones grandchildren, you tell Grandma what we sang. She's not going to be happy because she'll wish that she'd been here, but the Lord chose for her to be sick. Thank you, Lord. Who needs a praise band? We just follow the New Testament. It sounds pretty good. Now you sitting in the back, I'm sorry, but it's still okay. It's 5% less per PU that you sit from the front. Sitting up here, it's a, it's a, it's a wave of sound that washes over your soul. And those words were singing and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs were comforting one another with the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ or our going to Him. Amen. That was wonderful. I wish we had a glory meter back there on the recording equipment. Oh, I hope the Lord Jesus Christ is rejoicing in how much we love Him. Amen. And uh, love to sing His praise and are looking forward to Him coming for us. Which leads me into this text to get us started here in the second service. Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four and the apostles confidence, our, bro- our beloved brother Paul and his confidence for us as well. Are you ready to depart? Paul was ready to depart, and he knew that his time of departure had come. Second Timothy chapter 4, the last chapter that our brother wrote. Verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. And we just sang about that. So that puts us in the evidence of those that get a crown of righteousness in the 8th verse. Remember that when Paul was about to die, he didn't look back at some decision he made on the Damascus Road, because there's no confidence for eternal life in that. This text, verse 7, very clearly tells us that Paul looked to the fight that he had fought. He had fought a good fight, the Christian warfare, during his life and as a minister. He had finished his course. He had pressed forward, forgetting the things which were behind, not his sins, not his Jewish pedigree, but his Christian accomplishments. To that point, he forgot everything behind to press forward toward the prize of the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He kept the faith. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Look at what the apostle looked to for the assurance of his salvation. And he said, henceforth, based on that evidence, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge. Now I like that play on the word righteousness. The righteous judge is going to give the crown of righteousness. Do you think the crown will be sufficient to satisfy the judge? Thank you, Lord. And not to me only. Is that comforting? Not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. 
there's a whole lot more about loving is appearing than saying, I accept Jesus. I've seen so many people in my 57 years that will come forward and accept Jesus that don't really love his appearing because they love this world. Demas loved this world and forsook Paul in this very chapter. Two verses later, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. How many really love the appearing of Jesus Christ? Because the appearing of Jesus Christ is going to crush, squash, end everything you're doing. But what he replaces it with is unbelievable. But do you really love his appearing? Or do you want some more time in this world? Do you love his appearing? Do you love? Do you love his? Do you love his appearing? Lord, help us. Turn back with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's just a page away. And let's look at that text again about God's peradventure in our lives. Let's, I want to do, go over it again just because I don't want you to lose it. Don't want you to forget it. I want you to think about it when we walk away from each other here in just a few minutes. That whatever is in our lives that shouldn't be there, that we will tear it out of our lives and use the repentance that God has given us. And that we will pray for those that don't have the repentance that we would like them to have by asking God for a peradventure toward them. Here it goes again, verse 24. The servant of the Lord, that is a minister like Timothy, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. If it's His will, if God chooses to grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and the benefit that continues on that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by Him at His will. When I was 17 years old and a couple Baptist ministers that my father, a Baptist minister, had to take me to, you know, they said I was devilish from James chapter 3 and verses 14 through 16, because I had bitter envying and strife in my heart against my father. He didn't know what to do with me. I was a wild gadarene in his home. But the Lord had mercy upon me. And I remember that moment. And that moment was so striking when they just turned to me and said, you're devilish. Now, Not very many people were telling me I was devilish in those days. But they showed me from James chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I've shared this with you before. But God threw a peradventure my way. Amen. He gave me repentance. Yes. And I thank Him for it. And I praise Him for it. And what we are studying right now is, what is the evidence of eternal life? It is repentance. Have you had a change in heart and a change in lifestyle so that Things became old that you had been doing, and behold, all things become new. You know, from reading, I'll only mention some of the names. Is that understood? From reading Cycle World and other mags, when I was 17 years old, all of a sudden I was reading The Sovereignty of God, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner, God's Will, Man's Will, and Free Will by Horatius Bonar and Jonathan Edwards, and uh, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owens. Now listen, 
That is not an, an ordinary sequel to Cycle World. Because God changed my life. And I want to give Him all the glory for it. I praise Him and I thank Him for a peradventure in my life. Because if it had been my peradventure, my peradventure was leaving my father's home to go sow my wild oats in this world. But God had mercy on me. He's had mercy on you. It is the evidence of eternal life. The devils believe, but the devils don't repent. The devils know who Jesus is, but the devils don't change their lives. God does that through us. It's a work of grace that is the evidence of eternal life. And I rejoice in it with you. Look at Job 33. Job chapter 33. If I were to ask you, what is your favorite verse about confessing your sins and being forgiven? I think most of you would say 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a wonderful verse. But in that verse, it just says, if we confess. I want to give you a verse that goes a little further than that. Proverbs 28 and verse 13 says, He that hideth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall obtain mercy. Now that's a, is that a better verse? Because it sheds more light on what we need to do. When we confess our sins, listen, don't sin and just say, God, forgive me for doing that. Or worse yet, God, forgive me for what I'm about to do. God isn't going to forgive you with words like that. Beg God to forgive you for your sins and then forsake them. Run away from them. Turn away from them. Let them get lost. You get lost far away from them by forsaking them. Now here's another one. Job chapter 33. When we get into Job... And it's after Job 32 that we know there's only two men's, there's only two beings speaking for the most part. And they're the only ones that knew what was going on in the book of Job. Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar didn't know what was going on, but the young man Elihu did. And the young man Elihu is now speaking and teaching Job. And he says this. He has been talking down through this chapter of things that God often does with men. And he's got a man that is in a pit, verse 24, and uh, he needs help. Verse 21 describes his flesh is consumed away. It cannot be seen. His bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near into the grave, his life to the destroyers, and so on. What can a man like that do? When you're grieving for your sins, when you know you're wrong, when you know you've offended the Lord, here's a verse to help you that's a little bit better than Proverbs 28, 13, which was a little bit better than 1 John 1, 9. And they're all the words of God. Verse 27. He looketh upon men. God looketh upon men. And if any say, and I want you to get the threefold Confession here. I have sinned. I have sinned. And perverted that which was right. And it profited me not. Threefold way of confessing. This is Elihu. Elihu knows what he's talking about. Elihu is inspired. I have sinned. 
I have perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. That is coming clean with the Lord. What does God do when He hears that? Because it says in the first part of 27, He looketh upon men. If they talk that way to Him, verse 28, He will deliver His soul from going into the pit, and His life shall see the light. Those are the glory days. His life shall see the light. God will shine on that man. I have sinned. No one else has sinned. I have sinned. That is not blaming anyone else. That is taking full personal responsibility yourself that you individually have sinned and no one else is responsible for what you have done. I have sinned. The word sin is the transgression of God's law. You told me what I should do. You told me what I shouldn't do. I broke your law. I did it. No one forced me. No one is accountable except me. I have sinned. Can you tell the Lord that? I have perverted that which was right. You made something good. I have taken it and ruined it. You made the woman, and I've taken her before marriage. You made the woman... And I haven't treated my wife right. I have perverted that which was right. You have given me wine in its proper place. And I have perverted that which was right. You have given me food in its proper place. And I have perverted that which was right. You have given me money. And I have perverted that which was right. Are you willing to tell the Lord... That what He designed to be for your benefit, you have corrupted and perverted it. He, the loving Creator and Designer of the universe, has given you everything you have in your life, and you perverted it. We could go on with the list indefinitely. Take any part of your life. A job is to put peanut butter on your shelves. It's not an end for your life. Don't pervert that which He made right. We get it out of place. Are you willing to tell the Lord that? Your commandments are perfect. And I screwed them up. That's what it means to pervert them. Your commandments are so wise. In your design of every part of my life, And I mess around with them and twist them up and corrupt them. You are right. You are wise. You are good. You are kind. You are faithful. I am polluted. I am corrupt. I am mixed up, torn up. And I have twisted the thing that you made. Is it a decent thing that God made parents? Is 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 it a nice thing to come into this world? That little helpless fetal position baby and have somebody to take care of us that just ooze and ahs over us even though what's the name of that stuff that comes out first? I don't want to hear it. It looks like tar. It smells worse. And I'm not trying to be... Listen. That's how we arrive. Is it nice that there's somebody that just loves to dab that tar away? and dab it away so perfectly and so carefully, kissing me and telling me what a good boy I am for messing up the whole world with that aroma. 
the Lord is very kind. Amen. He gave us parents. Then the little boy becomes a little bigger boy and he mistreats his mother. And I've perverted that which was right. It is so right to have a loving mother. It is so right to have a loving father. And we pervert it. Another example I share with you is what the text means. And it profited me not. It profited me not. For anyone that knows about sex outside of marriage, they will stand and say, it profited me not. For anyone who knows about enforcing your foolishness on your wife or defrauding your husband if you are a wife, it profits you not. I was rebellious to my parents because I was a, a stud muffin. You know, I was going to rebel against my parents. Who ended up being the loneliest person on this planet but the rebel himself? It profited me not. Are you able to come to the Lord and say, you gave me a law, I broke it. The law was good and wise and right, and I perverted it. And I will admit to you, I didn't get a thing out of it. That's Job thirty-three twenty-seven. Now, if you want to know repentance in your life, then just feast on that verse right there. And then as soon as you're done feasting on it and you've got a good handle and you do that to the sins in your life, look at the promise of verse 28 so that I can shout one more time from verse 28. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit and his life shall see the light. This is God shining his light on you because you confess your sins this way. This is Bible repentance. This is coming clean. You know, Lord, we thank you for this food. Forgive us our sins. Amen. That isn't going to cut it. We can do much better than that. And we want to come before the Lord and come clean. And when we come clean this way, he comes to us. Praise his name. Look at Luke chapter 3 with me. Luke chapter 3. You know the examples that I just gave could be multiplied repeatedly, and maybe you're sorry that I'm not multiplying them repeatedly. I hope you'll consider them as they fit your own life. Lord, help us to know how to confess, forsake, and repudiate our sins in full and true repentance. Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist is on the scene. Verse 7, Then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's mocking these Pharisees that came out. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance is just not, I repent. There's fruits worthy of repentance. So there's got to be a changed life that matches the words, that matches the definition of repentance. And it's repudiating your past lifestyle to choose a new lifestyle in the particular area that you're repenting of. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. Luke 3.8 And begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. That doesn't mean anything. Repentance means everything. And now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, which bringeth not forth good fruit, that's a repentant life, 
is hewn down and cast into the fire. And that's the judgment that God brought upon Israel in 70 AD when he burned that generation up. And the people asked him saying, what shall we do then? See, they're repentant. What shall we do then? For us to bring forth works that are worthy of repentance, what do you want us to do, John? John, tell us. What should we do? He answered and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. So that's charity. It's getting rid of some of your stuff and giving it to others. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized. Those are the tax collectors picked out of the Jewish nation by the Romans and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. This is a Zacchaeus who had been exacting more than Rome had appointed him to collect in order to pad his own pockets. So they're told something specific that pertains to their profession in order to correct it to please God and have fruits worthy of repentance. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Amen. That's repentance. And the children came to him and said, What shall we do? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Wife, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord in everything. Husbands, be not bitter against your wives, but love them. Let her be as the loving hind in pleasant row. Let her breast satisfy you at all times, and be thou ravished always with her love. Servants, no purloining, but all good fidelity. And so we have answers throughout the Bible, and that's the evidence of repentance. What shall we do? Those are fruits worthy of repentance, because that is real repentance. I've already told you about Zacchaeus, who put this into practice. True conversion, true repentance, is to change something into another form. Conversion, to convert something, is to change it from one form to another. It's to transform it, and it requires repentance. Because repentance is getting rid of one way of living to embrace another way of living. It's to verbally repudiate it, as we did in Job 33, 27, and it's to physically separate yourself from it and despise it and change the way that you do things. To repent, because that is a work of grace. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, but faith which worketh by love. It is repentance, changed lives. It's witchcraft books being burned. It's websites no longer being looked at. It's the third plate being pushed away. It's temperance. It's discipline. It's change. Lord help us. Look at Romans chapter 12. You know it so well. Romans chapter 12, but it describes this, this conversion, transformation of a child of God. And that is the evidence of eternal life. Have you, by the grace of God, by conviction inside you and not, not pushed on you by someone else, changed something in your life in order to please God. 
That's the evidence of eternal life. If you've done it to please someone else, it's not the evidence of eternal life. If you've done it to please God, it's the evidence of eternal life. Romans 12, you know these verses. Look at 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, these first 11 chapters, my brethren, should move you to this, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We know the verses so well, do we practice the verses well? Be not conformed to this world. Don't look like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't want the world's music. Don't want the world's entertainment. Don't want the world's clothes. Don't want the world's attitude. We're not conformed to the world. We're different from the world. We're transformed. Are we transformed? It's what the Lord is looking for from us. And brethren, the subject is my assurance of eternal life. Are you transformed? You're going to heaven because he's transforming you a little bit now and he's going to glorify you shortly. Amen. It's the evidence of eternal life. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Now this is probably the best definition in the Bible of repentance yep. and godly sorrow. Yep. Verses 10 and 11. The apostle's excited, he's joyful, he's thankful, because when he got word from Titus that Corinth had taken his first epistle and changed the way they were doing things, and he got that word back, he was excited. First Corinthians is pretty rough. I mean, the church had a lot of problems. And Paul, it, it's called dropping the hammer. He dropped the hammer on them chapter after chapter after chapter, but they got it. Titus went and visited them. Titus comes back and says, you wouldn't believe what's going on in Corinth. It's awesome. They have changed so much. And this, this chapter is about that and the joy that it caused the apostle to get a good report from a church, even though he had fightings without and fears within, he was comforted by the wonderful coming of Titus. It's just, it's just precious. Every father knows this. When their children do what is right, it's joy, no matter how much their body might be aching or how they're discouraged to have their children doing what is right. Every pastor knows it, and Paul knew it. Here we go, verses 10 and 11. And he explains, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. True godly sorrow causes men to repent for the evidence of salvation and the salvation of whatever was holding them in bondage, not to be repented of. That means you don't repent of your repentance. You know, when somebody repents, and two days later you find them doing the same thing, uh, that is hard to see as real repentance. Because real repentance is longer lasting than that. The work of grace, when God peradventures on a man, lasts longer. If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So it says here, this is repentance that you don't change your mind on a few days from now. You stick with it. Godly sorrow worketh repentance. Repentance is turning from one way of living to another way of living, repudiating the old, embracing the new. That's godly sorrow. That is sorrow about sin that is godly. It is acceptable in God's sight. It is the result of a work of grace from God. And it is true repentance 
that results in salvation, practical salvation from that sin that was holding you in bondage, not to be repented of. Godly sorrow lasts longer than a couple hours. Godly sorrow lasts longer than a couple days. Godly sorrow is from God and by His strength, you can do something and hold off that sin. By the grace of God. You can deliver yourself from the snare of the devil. You can deliver yourself from being taken captive by Him at His will by true godly sorrow. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. Instead of getting out of something, they just fall deeper into it, fall into something else just like it. It worketh death. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's not repentance. It's not godly sorrow. It's the sorrow of the world. They'll say they're sorry, but it doesn't mean a thing. It works death. They just continue on the descent into the abyss of sin and its destruction. They descend on into perdition. They descend into the arms of the devil. Abaddon and Apollyon, whose name means destroyer, because they don't have godly sorrow. When you come to the Lord about sin, it better be godly sorrow that brings you to truly repent of your sins and not for a day or a moment, but you are, you embrace the new way of living and hate the old. Don't just, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Please forgive me. Bye bye. Godly sorrow. Real repentance. A changed life that lasts. You're on your way to heaven. Your name's in the book of life. That's that's what we're going after in all these verses. Okay? Can you tell me more about godly sorrow? Yes. Paul told us more about godly sorrow. It's in the next verse. For, he's going to explain the godly sorrow that works repentance to salvation. For, behold, this self-same thing, this is the identity of godly sorrow and real repentance. For behold, this self-same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. You did it right in Corinth. You showed real repentance. And here it goes. And so when somebody, when somebody asks, how do I repent? Or somebody asks you, has that person repented? Or you're wondering, have I repented? Well, this is it. This is the all out, sold out, on fire, everything in, all in, war against a sin in your life. What carefulness it wrought in you. Carefulness. You cared about details. You cared about accidental contacts with a temptation toward that sin. You became very careful that you would avoid anything to do with that. What carefulness it wrought in you. This is repentance after a godly sort. This is repentance that leads to salvation. This is repentance that is the evidence of eternal life. What carefulness it wrought in you. It did a work in you. It changed you. You became very careful about that thing that had previously enslaved you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. To those around you, he does not do that anymore. He is different. You clear yourselves. Yea, what indignation. You are mad. Why did I ever do that? You're mad about it. What indignation. Yea, what fear. You are so petrified of falling into that sin again. You don't want to get toward those things that tempt you toward it. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to joke about it. Because you have such fear against that sin that once held you. 
What fear, what vehement desire. You have a passionate love for doing righteousness and a passionate hatred for what you had been doing. You were angry with indignation. Now you hate it with vehement desire. Well, you have a flaming passion to do what is right and to repudiate all that you have been doing. Yea, what zeal! What energy you put forth and thoroughness and drive and ambition to do what is right. Yea, what revenge! You are going to make up for what you got into by revenging and making up for it. Look at the Apostle Paul. Did he make up for what he did to the Christians? As soon as the Lord got through with him, having three days without meat in Damascus, and having his eyesight restored and being baptized, he was in the synagogue at Damascus preaching Christ. And he kept running until the day the Lord said, Come home to me. What zeal, what revenge. Look at the exclamation point in your King James Bible for this long sentence that I've just worked through with you. There's an exclamation point at the end of it, meaning that all of these descriptive phrases that are about repentance are emphatic from the Holy Spirit. This is it. You know, if a, if a person does something like this, are they going to heaven? Yeah, obviously. Because you know, the only person that would ever do anything like that is God's had a peradventure on them. And this is what we want to look for, brethren, when we talk about repentance. In all, what's the result of it? In all things, ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Is that a nice wiping of the slate clean? And it's because of true Repentance. Initial conversion like Zacchaeus or Pentecostal Jews is followed by a life of further conversion. You know, once you, once you get rid of one thing, then you need to be looking and asking the Lord to show you other things in your life so that you can cut them out and end them as well. You know, if you don't have a dramatic event of repentance like Saul of Tarsus, You know, we've got some members in our church that have a more dramatic turn. And one of them likes to get up here and tell you about it. And we like him to get up here and tell us about it. But if you don't have one of those, is your life transformed? You know, it doesn't matter how you get transformed. If you get transformed in one great big bolt of lightning in Nashville, or if you get transformed by sticking your finger in wall sockets every now and then when you hear the preaching, it doesn't matter how. And I don't want, I don't want any of you to be discouraged thinking I don't know that I have eternal life because I've never had a big, a big change all in one day. That's okay. Do you just keep on changing? Or are you transformed in the slow incremental steps of transformation? You are on your way to heaven because that's repentance that God has done to you for you in a different way than he has for some others. Each time you mortify the old man and put on the new man for Christ's sake, you prove repentance. Every time you mortify some work of the flesh by putting it to death and putting on the fruit of the Spirit, it's proof of repentance. It's proof of your eternal life. I want to send you out of here today repenting of your sins, looking for more to repent of and to repent of them in the spirit of 2 Corinthians 7, 11. May you remember Job 33, 27. May you remember the things that we've looked at today. Devils can't repent. They can believe, but they can't repent. You can believe and repent if God's grace is in your life. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.